You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. There's got to be one in every group of friends. Sometimes there are multiple of these people in every group of friends. I'm Scott Rintoul. He is Jamie Dodd. Yeah, that's proof I remember how to pronounce his last name. Jamie, <laughs> are you ever the catalyst in your group of friends where you just throw something out there because you know it's going to catch fire and you let it go? Oh, yeah. I've been there for sure. Yeah, so I just did that. I think I've referenced it before. One of my fantasy football leagues, the chat's relatively active, like to the point where I can finish doing this show and look and go, how are there 179? <laughs> how are there 179 exchanges on here? Like, what? Uh, I don't have time for this. Like, that's how active it is. So during the Giants interview, I, you heard me say I've got a couple of friends who are yep. Giants fans. A couple of them happen to exist in this league. So while we were doing that, I threw out there in our chat at one point, I said, hey, I just had a Giants fan on. Pardon me, a Giants reporter on. He said this is the most demoralized the fan base has been in eight years. We're closing in on triple digits now. That thing's going. That thing is hammering now. (laughs) That fantasy football chat is active. They're arguing about what the problem in New York is. Is it Gettleman? No, it's the talent. No, it's Garrett. They didn't invest in the O-line. I kind of like doing it, and I just walk away. You guys have your fire now. I started it for you. You guys enjoy that. I love it. I appreciate it. And I will say, not the hardest thing in the world right now, I think, to uh, to get Giants fans going, as, as we heard from Jordan in that last segment, right? There's plenty that they have found to complain about within that organization. Well, and you know this as being a fan of teams and across sports. All of our listeners know this. There's that point as a fan where you know your team's no good and you're really unhappy about it and you're willing to pile on when somebody else piles on. And then there's that other part where you think, well, hold on a second. We're allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to do that. You can't say that about us. Yeah, Yeah, we will defend our team. And now I'm going to point out problems with your organization and why does Aaron Rodgers look like that right now? It's not going to be a good season for the Packers. He looks... Maybe the best tweet I saw yesterday, because everybody's saying, well, Aaron Rodgers looks like this with his new hair and everything he did in the offseason. Like somebody has said, Aaron Aaron Rodgers looks like he's going to go steal a catalytic converter. And I saw someone else say (laughs) that Aaron Rodgers looks like Nick Cage playing Aaron Rodgers in a movie about Tom Brady. (laughs) Yeah, but still... That doesn't quite capture the kind of washed up aspect of it all. Not washed up as a player, but just like he looked old in that picture, man. And we all have those days, don't we? I know I certainly do. I don't know if Sean Shapiro does. He joins us now. He of the Athletic covers the National Hockey League. We'll get into a little more puck talk here. Unless you would like to comment on the appearance these days of Aaron Rodgers, Sean. <laughs> the uh, the Nick Cage, uh, the Nick Cage Tom Brady movie one is actually pretty good. So I don't know who. I didn't hear who the originated one, but kudos to whoever that was. That one got me laughing, so that was pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I, I didn't have the timeline on that in front of me, but I saw it retweeted a bunch of times yesterday. I was like, that's that's a pretty good call right there. you got a piece up right now at The Athletic on the evolution of rookie tournaments, and this is something I think we just kind of take for granted now as if it's always been a long. Rookie camps are opening today. How did this all get going to where we are now? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting thing. Like we think about it now, and if a team doesn't do one in normal years, obviously we're still in kind of coming back to normalcy a little bit. There's some teams still figuring things out as we come out of COVID and everything. But in normal years, if, if a team doesn't do one, it's noteworthy. And 
it's kind of something that's, that's evolved and has become this fixture where it used to be this novel idea. And now you're an NHL team. You almost have to do one because everyone else is doing it. So essentially it goes back to, you go back to the Red Wings are the Red Wings are at the height of their dynasty and in the nineties, they've just won a cup and the uh, Red Wings management, uh, Ken Holland and Jim Nill at the time are having a discussion of, well, how the heck do we fairly evaluate these the prospects in our camp when we're asking them to go head to head right away with Steve Eiserman, the Russian Five, Brendan Shanahan, and it's it's not it's like there's no way for us to fairly evaluate these kids and these younger players, and so that that was where the the problem popped up, and and essentially for the idea was Ken Holland and Jim Nill watching a training camp. Where, where they came up with this idea of like, well, what if we threw, found a way to get them to play against their peers? And the Red Wings had already been doing their training camp up in Traverse City. And so they found three other teams to come up and buy into this idea of, well, why don't we each bring up, why don't we all bring up our prospects here? They'll play against their peers. And then we don't have to worry about evaluating guys against longtime NHLers. And maybe we can, maybe it'll, maybe it'll be something worthwhile. And the idea took off. Um, took off uh at first locally here up in up in traverse city where the red wings continue have hosted the tournament now since 1998 um and eventually at one point at its height it had grown to eight teams and essentially everyone all the teams that almost became a waiting list to get into the tournament every nhl team was scouting it and other teams started saying hey well why aren't we doing this why aren't we doing this ourselves or why can't we get into this and then one's popped up in Buffalo, one's popped up, and now there's regional ones. Essentially, it was kind of this silly idea of like, well, how do we how do we evaluate the Red Wings prospects of the late 90s without having them go head-to-head with uh, Steve Eiserman to what it become, become now, where if a team doesn't have one, you're kind of wondering if it's, if it's mismanagement. <laughs> for the longest time, Sean, the Detroit Red Wings were the gold standard for development in the National Hockey League, and it's easy to say that about an organization when it's on top. Many people would point to Tampa Bay right now, and they probably wouldn't be wrong because of the way that they've done their development. There's always that conversation about drafting versus development, which is more important. They certainly go hand-in-hand. Hand. Which are the teams right now? I won't ask you to just narrow it to one, but yep. which are the teams right now that are in that top tier, in your opinion, when it comes to development in the National Hockey yeah. League? Well, and it's you hit it on the top there with Tampa right now. You give them, you look at what they've been able to. Obviously, it's as you said, it's easy to to give teams credit when they're on top. But really, what they've done, the way they've turned, they've turned players, and they and they've made, they've made gotten return on investments on draft pick. Like it's you can't, you can't dispute that. That's one of the biggest reasons they've won two Stanley Cups, and they've been able to overcome go on these cup runs when guys like Kucherov and Stamkos have been hurt or not at 100% or not even there. So Tampa is definitely, Tampa's right at the top there. Um, you have teams like even, even some teams that haven't won cups that have been, that have, that have been contenders. Like you look at what like St. Louis has done. And I'm sorry, I'm going back to another cup winner, but St. Louis has done a really good job of developing guys and bringing them in and taking things to the next level. And then you also have a, uh, even a team like Minnesota who hasn't always had has never really always been in my view. And maybe someone may disagree with me, but Minnesota has always has, hasn't always been a big draft day winner, but even when, but they've still kind of, you look at what they've done as a franchise when it comes to playoffs and, and what they've done 
over time, it's kind of uh, it's kind of outperformed what draft day would tell you. Um, it's it's I think for me, you look at those teams that haven't had the uh, that haven't had the automatic winner in the draft, and then they're still continuously finding players. That's what I really pick at, and uh, those are just some three off the top of my head. But we could go. That's a much lengthier conversation too. <laughs> Well, and John, you know, we always look at the teams that are have been rebuilding for a little bit. And I'm thinking here of a team like Detroit or L.A. Mm-hmm. that have really yeah. amassed this impressive list of prospects. And it's easy to look at those situations and say, you know, hey, they're going to turn into powerhouses in a few years. But once you do start winning, as you mentioned, you know, then all of a sudden those kind of easy wins, those gimmies at the top of the draft go away. And I think the bigger challenge for those teams, okay, it's great that you chose a bunch of top picks, but then you have to figure out how to have that sustainable development pipeline when you start graduating those guys. Yeah, and I think a perfect example, is, so the team I used to cover was the Dallas Stars. I think they're a perfect example of a team that has had, there's been a good example of both hits and misses where they had some of those wins at the top of the draft. One of the reasons the Stars were in the cup final two years ago was because you've got, they, they won they won the draft lottery and got a Miro Haitian in, but they, the reason that the stars are in a spot that where they're not, they haven't really had that final consistency year to year is there hasn't been a lot of those fines. There hasn't been a lot of the overall, Hey, we're getting immediate return on investment or not immediate, but quick return on investment on those guys that are drafted in the later rounds or the second rounds or anything like that. So I think, I think you look at teams like that and the teams that kind of, have to rely so much on those wins and then they can't build around it from within their own system. And we hear GM say that it's a cap world all the time. And that's really what so many of them are talking about. You have to, you have to find the, uh, you have to make the most of what's inside your own system because otherwise you're just not going to be able to, to afford to field a winning team, especially now with this world where who knows how long we'll have a flat cap and everything like that. Well, and I wanted to ask you about the salary cap, Sean, because we did get yep. a little bit of news. Elliot Friedman reporting via Bill Daly that uh, the salary cap expected to go up by a million dollars going into next season. Now, mm-hmm. that's not the flat cap that we'd heard so much about, but it's yep. also not a very significant rise. At this point, what's the timeline for getting back to something close to normal as the salary cap and the financial situation in the NHL is concerned? Well, and see, that's the, the, that's the big question, too, because – even if the cap goes up a million dollars and everything like that, that's, that's not going up with what players had hoped for as, as, uh, as far as normal inflation and everything like that. Um, the big issue is, and it's until the, until we can get to a normal return is once the, it's when the NHL players have paid back their debt to the owners. And I know anyone who doesn't follow the business, the NHL is going to say what the players owe the owner's debt. How, how is that possible? Well, Quick 101 is basically player salaries are are set based off expected hockey revenue and when and and if hockey and the league and the play, the players and owners split it 50 50 and if uh, and if it, if it, and if it's not an exact 50 50 split to meet the players to meet the players actual salaries it goes into escrow and basically they have to pay the owners back to to make it 50 50 and right now the big number is the players as a whole owe owners a billion dollars. Like it's, I know it's, it's kind of uh, not the most comp. It's not the simplest system, but essentially what players owe the owners a billion dollars. And until that debt is paid back, we're not going to see the salary cap rise like it normally would on a year to year basis. And 
hopefully, I know I'm, I've talked to people in the league who think it's something that will be done before the next CBA. Some people think it would be two to three years. I would, if I'm averaging out the optimists and the pessimists, I would go with three years to average out the, to average out the, the kind of thing. But it's, it's really going to depend on how things come back and, and really jump out of this season because this, the NHL is built on really three main financial pillars. It's, it's, uh, it's TV money, which we already know what that's going to be. It's, it's uh, advertisement sponsors. And then obviously the big one is attendance. So, going to be this is a really big year for the league and getting people back into the into the venues because that's that's how the players have to get hockey related revenue back up in the current system to to start paying owners back and i want to hit on a couple of those pillars with you here sean yeah. shapiro yeah. of the athletic joining us here talking hockey on rental and sermon with jamie dodd let's talk about attendance news coming out today in canada there are going to be a couple of places like quebec and british columbia where capacity will be limited we don't know what those limits currently are there'll be a couple other provinces where it's open and maybe full capacity in alberta manitoba they're still waiting to find out what happens in ontario What's the situation around the National Hockey League south of the border right now? Do you expect restrictions in many places? Um, in the United States, I expect it's it's looking like we're going to see very few restrictions, to be frank. I mean, we saw the Lightning had a full house for the Stanley Cup final. We've seen a lot of the uh, go farther south. Southern states already had some of them even flirted with close to half the full attendance last year. The, the teams in the United States, restriction-wise, are going to be in a good spot as far as getting people into the building and having that opportunity. Um, there may be a couple of local restrictions here and there, but overall, if you're a team in the United States, you're in a good spot when it comes to local restrictions and COVID. It is going to be really interesting from my perspective to see what happens kind of uh, with comfort level for people coming back, because I'm sure we're going to see full buildings that first couple weeks of October, but it's going to be interesting to see how people uh, how people decide they want to spend their money as they come back. Did I talked to one team president a couple couple weeks back about? He said he was he told me how he was kind of worried about. It's like I know we'll get a full building for October and November, but are we still going to have that same oomph to go to a game in December? Because people just spend basically a year and a half away from not going to games, and I'm sure they missed hockey, but did they miss going to 41 games a year? So it's going to be. There's kind of the restriction level, and then there's the personal decision that a lot of people are going to be making that I know a lot of teams are are worried about. And depending on what state we're talking about, those restrictions are, hey, you got to be double vaccinated or give us a a negative COVID test to get in. And in other places, we know Florida's not going that way. Texas isn't going that way. They're not going to go with that type of operation. How comfortable does the NHL seem to be with that? The NHL right now, I think, is uh, whether publicly and, and it's from my understanding, they're letting the state and the teams basically make the best decision. I think they feel comfortable enough with that right now. Obviously, the league's in a spot where they'd love for everything to be open from a financial perspective. And and of course, the, the main company line is always going to be we're going to do what's safe because that's what the league has to say. But deep down, the league wants things to be as easy as possible to get a building filled because... They're trying to come back from quite a financial hit over the last two years. So you mentioned those pillars. We talked about gate revenue and how that might be impacted. Another is the television revenue. And you said, Mm -hmm. we know what it's going to be. And I think that's where there were some who realized how bad the financial damage was. And we saw the numbers from ESPN and Turner come out and you went, oh, 
That's not going to make up the shortfall. All right, I guess this is really bad. Outside of that, what's been the reaction, in your opinion, to ESPN introducing its lineup and those who are going to be on board and TNT doing the same thing? Yeah, I think we had we said the Turner introduction the other day, and um, I, I think there's been some there was a lot of excitement around ESPN Turner coming in. One of the things, one of the things, both people within the league and my my sense, general hockey fans thought of we're going to get some fresh blood basically into broadcasting. We're going to get some fresh views and takes and everything like that, and. I think we, I'm still giving ESPN and Turner a chance to do that, but I think what is, I think it's been a little bit for what we were sold on is, oh, hey, it's going to be new. It's going to be creative. It's going to be take things to the next level. So far, I don't think we've seen any of that. I don't think we've seen anything like that that delivers on that promise yet. Now, they haven't done a single game yet, so we can't, we can't hold that against them yet. But I think right now we're still kind of at the, Okay, well, you hired a bunch of people from NBC Turner's lineup. Yes, they hired Wayne Gretzky, big name. They hired uh, Paul Bissonnette, who's come in, one of the biggest personalities in hockey. Okay, you brought some people in like that, but also a lot of guys from NBC, and people were always were kind of down on the NBC broadcast in the United States. So are we just going to see some of that with a different voice in there? I, I think right now um, I'm being more cautious than others, where I think like I'm going to give it a chance and see what happens. But right now with the lineup announcement, it wasn't exactly kind of the, wow, this is going to be, this is going to turn in so many more hockey fans. Like everyone was kind of uh, thrown out there. I mean, I, with Turner, one of the things a lot of people were talking about was like, Oh, wow, maybe we can get some crossover with guys from professional wrestling, bring some fans over from that. Maybe that could be in the works, but nothing like that has uh, culminated or come together at all at this point. And with the the new broadcasters in the United States, you know, as you mentioned, okay, a lot of talent that are going to be familiar faces to people in the United States. But I do wonder, I mean, I look at ESPN in particular, if the game, what they do from a game broadcast standard is almost less important than what the rest of the company does shining a spotlight on the game of hockey. Yeah, and I think the big thing we need to mention about ESPN that kind of gets lost too, and this may be stepping away from, I'm not pull me back if I start going too far off the rails here, but I think the big thing that is going to be really big for hockey's growth in the United States with ESPN is the fact the out-of-market streaming package is now on ESPN+. Plus. Because in the past, there was, if you were NHL Game Center, Center Ice, whatever it was, it was sold to the niche hockey fan. That was the person who was going to buy that and watch more games. Now you have ESPN+, Plus, which subscribers are growing by the millions and everything like that. You, and it's only $6 a month, you have the ability to grab those people who would never subscribe to a hockey package, but may have subscribed to ESPN Plus for college football or, or baseball or whatever it is, and now they're going to flip through ESPN Plus on a Tuesday night and be, oh, I can watch this game. That, I think, is going to be ESPN's lasting impact if it, if it grows the game. It's going to be taking the everyday, the daily, out of the niche we're selling to the hockey to, we're selling to the general sports fan, and that's what I think the NHL was greatly missing. Um, I know I went off the rails a little bit, but that's what I always – I think we don't talk enough about that when it comes to ESPN and this deal. No, it's a great point. I think it's probably one of the reasons the NHL is excited to to hook up with ESPN. You know, you mentioned those those three pillars of revenue, right, yep. with the sponsorship, the TV, 
and the attendance, the gate. And I'm guessing at some point in the medium term, they would like to add a fourth pillar to that revenue, which is sports betting. And we've all heard so much about how different leagues, uh, certainly in the media, are excited about the potential of sports betting. I know they signed a partnership with a, a sports book earlier this year. In the near term, what is the NHL's foray into that world going to look like? What is it going to look like from the average fan's perspective? It's going to depend greatly on where you are, to be honest. If you are in, like, I know there are teams in states where sports betting is illegal that are actually going to hit pre-COVID numbers as far as revenue because of sports betting alone. So if you are in New Jersey or you are in uh, Illinois or you are in or any, any state where, where, where sports betting is now legal, you're, it's going to be in your face. It's just going to be on, on the everyday. It's going to be in your face. Um, other, other states where it's not legal, you're going to probably don't be surprised if you see teams try to, if teams are, and some teams are lobbying their local government to get it done. It's going to, it's going to be in your face. And I think the best example is in the United States, that 14 now, I believe of the NH of the, of the, of the American NHL teams, our, their regional game, their local games are carried by Valley Sports Southwest, which is or is not Southwest. Sorry, Valley Valley Sports Valley Sports Network, which used to be the Fox Sports Networks, so the Fox Sports Carolinas, Fox Sports West, Fox Sports LA, whatever. And so, the fact that now you literally have a gambling company that has bought the naming rights to the regional sports network, they're not just going to throw their name on it. You're going to be see games, and you're going to you're going to see their, little things are going to creep in about gambling and betting because that's a big play by Bally, both in hockey and basketball and baseball and all of those, where we want to get you thinking about gambling and we want you to think about Bally and we want you to uh, therefore go place a bet with us. So it is, it's going to be in your face. And now depending on where you are, it's how much, how much is in your face is going to be in the United States. And similar things are going to happen in Canada as things become more legal too, with what you can do with single game bets there. Oh, it's happening. It is well in the works. I can tell you that right now. You know that. Thank you very much for sharing here today, Sean. Always appreciate your insight on this program. We'll do it again soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Enjoy the day. You as well. That is Sean Shapiro, writes for The Athletic. And we don't want to dive too much into the business of hockey. I know people would rather talk about lineup combinations. But it's an interesting topic, especially with what you mentioned there at the end, Jamie. And look, Sportsnet just this week... Brought Cabby back. Cabral Richards coming back to Canada, and he's going to be the executive producer of Sportsnet's gambling division. This is going to be different from now on, and I don't know exactly how he's going to build his team out, but he brings excitement to every single thing he does. And if you heard him talk on the radio this week or if you watched him on Tim and Friends, he's pretty fired up about this opportunity. Your broadcasts are going to look different. You are going to see things you haven't seen before in this country, and and they're not just Sportsnet, but other entities, they're going to try to interest you in a way that you might not have been inclined to be interested before. Yeah, and the phrase Sean used there was in your face, right? And I'm not sure we see it completely in your face this year here in Canada. But, I mean, the example he gave there of Bally Sports Network, I mean, Bally's a casino company. That's what it is, right? And now it's the one, you know, they have their name on the regional sports networks that's showing a ton of hockey games. So I think in the U.S. in a lot of places, it is going to be in your face. And I think it's coming in Canada as well. This one comes in, wonder if increased gambling will force NHL teams to reveal specific injuries and who the starting goalie will be at the morning skate. Yes. I don't know about the goalie at the morning skate, 
And we've seen, hey, we saw some debate about this with the BC Lions earlier this year in the Canadian Football League. Well, you said Michael Riley was starting, and then it was Nathan Rourke, and then you said Nathan Rourke was starting, it was Michael Riley, and and that question came up from those CFL fans, but also those going, hold on a second here. If I wanted to put some money on this, I kind of want to know some information. They'll be pressured to announce those types of things with goaltending decisions, but the injuries, that will be unequivocal in my mind, Jamie. It'll be something along the lines of what the NFL does, that you're going to have to place a player in a specific category. You might not have to tell everyone what his specific injury is, but are you probable? Are you questionable? Are you limited? What are you? Yeah, and you're just going to have to get in line, right? Because if the NHL mandates and says, hey, this is what we need to do to grow the revenues, this is that important to us. If the NFL does it, we can do it too. And I, I completely agree with the texture. We are going to see that. What did we see with even COVID and the way it was handled originally? Hey, the teams aren't allowed to talk about it. The NHL will release a list. And every single yep. team got in line. And I'm sure there were coaches or general managers out there who went, who probably went, yeah, like we don't have any problem communicating that information but we've been told not to and if they're told to do the opposite no we need you to communicate that information every day and there will be somebody in the in the media who's dedicated to asking those questions because some of these factions are going to have people employed to ask them so that they can relay it to their gambling division and that information can be out there yes and i mean there'll be people in the nhl enforcing it right there will like when that happens, there will have to be teeth from a league perspective, right? That we're not just going to write you a memo and hope you follow the rules. We're going to take action if you don't do it up to our standards. Speaking of money, it got me thinking yesterday when I saw this story, and I have no idea what the number would have been. But we'll bounce that around in the next segment. We also have been confirmed Jet Wu is going to join us, Canucks prospect start of the fourth hour of this program today after we part ways with part of our audience but wanted to update our listenership on that it's scott rintoul this is rintoul and sermon with jamie dodd you hear him too you're listening to rintoul and sermon haven't seen the interview haven't heard the clips yet but i am seeing the quotes it's scott rintoul it's jamie dodd we told you earlier in the program today that elliot friedman had some news we relayed it to you off the top of the show some of it had to do with NHL capacity across this country, Jamie, and whether it was in Alberta or Manitoba where they are expecting to be at full capacity despite some of the challenges being faced with COVID right now or BC and Quebec where there's going to be limited capacity to start the season. At least that's the current belief. That was part of his reporting. Another part of LH's reporting, and this came from Bill Daly, the Evander Kane investigation, the gambling allegations that are out there, those will be concluded by the beginning of training camp, which as we know begins in a week. Yeah, so we should expect news on that front very, very soon. I mean, as you said, there's there's only a certain number of days between now and the deadline that they just gave today to get that out. So we will have some answers on Evander Kane's future, at least at the NHL, not necessarily with the Sharks specifically, but what his immediate future holds as a hockey player sooner rather than later. Now, he has given some answers, not on the investigation itself, but from his perspective, and that's the interview I'm referring to here. Vander Kane spoke with SportsCenter on ESPN, Linda Cohn. She did the interview. It aired just under an hour ago on ESPN, and while we don't have the clips yet because of it being on ESPN and a little difficulty gathering them, I can give you some of the quotes. So there are a couple of things that were addressed in the interview. I have no idea all of the topics, but I'm going to give you the quotes that I'm seeing right now. So there are two things here. One is the gambling accusation about betting on the NHL, potentially betting on his own team. 
And then there are the allegations from a team perspective. And we saw that report in The Athletic that there were a bunch of teammates that didn't want him back and that he'd fallen out of favor in San Jose. On that front, she asked him, Linda Cohn did, about why teammates might not want him back. Kane's reply, I'm not sure. He added, I think it's easy to point the finger at me. I think it's easy to try to make me the scapegoat because of some of my personal issues that have played out in public and point to that. I think it's an easy cop-out. At the same time, I don't necessarily know or believe that's true. When it comes to the media, I really take that with a grain of salt. I don't know how many players, Jamie. I do know this. That is not getting reported by a credible reporter like Kevin Kurtz without talking to active National Hockey League players who didn't want their names on the record but were willing to share that information. Yes, it's it's coming from somewhere, right? That's coming from players on the Stars roster, really, that are telling Kevin Kurtz that about Evander Kane. I mean, in all likelihood, that's what's going on there. So it's interesting to hear Evander Kane's perspective on it, saying, like, look, I'm basically a scapegoat for the way things are going uh, in San Jose and the struggles that team have had. And, you know, look, I'm an easy target because we all see these things playing out in public. I get that, but... It's a, it's a really fascinating dynamic there in San Jose because I think for the players to not go on record with it, but to share as strongly as whatever those sources are did with Kevin Kurtz, there's obviously major, major issues in that locker room. Isn't it amazing how quickly things change? What do we always talk about in sports? Good culture. Got to have a good culture in your organization. And San Jose was viewed as one of the gold standards in the National Hockey yep. League very recently. I'm talking really recently we could talk about whether they should have won more and ah they never got a cup and what was it all for but san jose was viewed as one of the top cultures accepting of other players always helping them into the organization it was a really good room good synergy between general manager coach players all of that and look how quickly it's gone the other way and when you look at the players that have made their way out of there patrick marlowe was there recently but he left, and then Joe, Joe Thornton stayed. It seems to have turned around the time that they committed big money to both Eric Carlson and Evander Kane. They didn't commit money to Joe Pavelski. They thought, mm, age with where we're at. They didn't take care of him. And that's right in around the time that this story shifted from a results and a culture perspective entirely. Yes, and I think the other thing from the culture perspective there with San Jose is – we often think of it as, okay, a good culture will lead to winning and a bad culture will lead to losing. But it can go the other way too, right? Because what's also happened in that time frame is they've gone from consistently winning a ton of games every year to struggling on the ice. And it's a lot easier for your, for your culture to turn, for your culture to deteriorate and get ugly when you're losing games than it is when you're winning games. And they've done a lot of losing. And it yep. doesn't feel like that's going to change anytime soon. This is a team that in the last five years went to a Stanley Cup final. And yeah, ultimately bowed out. But that's not that long ago, man. No, it's not that long ago at all. That they, I mean, remember, how long ago was it that they were in that epic uh, playoff series with the Vegas Golden Knights, right? And and that that's not that long ago either. What What is that, 2019 that we're talking about? You know, that doesn't seem all that long ago. But again, since that moment... They've done an awful lot of losing, and I think it's just really, really hard to maintain that strong, positive culture when you're not having any sort of success out there on the ice. 
One of the questions to Evander Kane was, what do you want people to know about you? Raja Shergirl, who's producing this program, he's just sent us these clips. Let's hear that one, Greg. What Evander Kane said to that question, what do you want people out there to know about you? Well, I, I think, um, you know, when you're an athlete and in a sport like I am, um, you know, and, and you're in a sport, I'm in a white sport. I'm a black player. I have a big personality um, that maybe sometimes rubs people the wrong way, but it's not meant to. When it comes to what people don't know, I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the issues I've had or the allegations that have been made about me are just completely not true. I'm not looking for um, people to feel sorry for me. That's the last thing I need. Um, I'm not looking for people to feel bad for me. I'm just asking to be treated fairly and judged accordingly. Jamie, Evander Kane, he's going to have to answer questions. And this isn't going away anytime soon. And we'll get to the gambling part of this in just one second and what he said in the interview. He's at a point now, from a reputation standpoint, where he needs people to take up for him. He needs teammates to publicly take up for him. Yeah. Yeah, and we have the text coming in to the Calgary inbox saying, guys, just remember Kane was traded out of Winnipeg in part because he didn't get along with the other players there. That's true. And it does feel – it's tough because I hear what he's saying, right, with the element of you know him being black in a sport that is predominantly white. He has a big personality, and it's easy to single him out when things maybe aren't going well in a dressing room. I think that's 100% part of the story here, but you're right – eventually you also need to get that vote of confidence from your teammates. A bunch of different things can be true in this same situation. Maybe there are a bunch of players who don't want him back, and maybe there are a bunch of important players in San Jose who don't want him back. And it can also be true that Evander Kane isn't the whole problem. Like yep. he, might be, he might be a part of the problem there. All, like From an on-ice perspective, he was arguably their best player last season. He actually, despite all of what would be perceived as turmoil around him, both professionally and personally, Vander Kane was good for a team that was not very good last year. But there are a bunch of other issues on that team. And, you know, someone oh, texted yeah. in saying, can't forget about the massive contracts of Vlasic and Couture. Both are underperforming. Yeah. It's not It's not as simple as, well, if you extract Vander Kane from the San Jose Sharks, they're going to be a really good team all of a sudden. No, no. No, no, no one no. is suggesting that. No, if play, and if players in that locker room have convinced themselves of that, they're in for a rude awakening if that does happen. Because as you said, he was arguably their best player, their most important player last year. And look, okay, maybe you don't get along with the guy in the locker room, but that happens all the time. That happens in every workplace. That certainly happens in every locker room in the NHL, but there are people you don't get along with. And again, we don't know the full scope of the issues, right? There's different degrees of not getting along with someone. There's degrees of conflict in your workplace, but... I find it hard to believe that when you look at what he contributed on the ice, that it would be pure, you know, addition by subtraction with Evander Kane in San Jose. This was part of his discussion as well. The gambling allegations, not surprisingly, Evander Kane, as he has stated before, he called the gambling allegations that from his wife, Anna Kane, that he gambled on NHL games. He says those are, quote, incredibly false. He said he's never bet on an NHL game, never tried to lose. He's never altered how he plays based on a bet. 
Here's another quote. It's unfortunate that those allegations, false allegations, were made. Obviously, when they happened, I understood the magnitude of them immediately, not knowing what was going to happen next, but confident, he says, because I know that's not true. I was very confident, comfortable with where I was, knowing that I was going to be exonerated, am going to be exonerated of those allegations. Well, we'll know in a week from the NHL's perspective what they do. Yeah, we'll see if they agree. That's a very strong, very direct, you know, not really mincing words denial there from Evander Kane. I would think that, you know, he knows an investigation is coming out, right? If he has any reason to be cautious, maybe or to be concerned at least, maybe you would hear a, a different tone from him in his denial there. Pretty strong, but as you said, we'll find out soon enough from the NHL. We will get some of those clips filtered in a little bit later on during the course of the program today. It's Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd. Speaking of money and potential scandals, Chris Webber. I saw him speaking yesterday, and for those who may have missed it, it was a really busy sports weekend as we got in here on Monday and discussed. Chris Webber went into the Basketball Hall of Fame over the course of the weekend. Do you think of him more for his role in college or his role in the NBA, Jamie? Oh, he stands out for me more as an NBA player because I was a massive, massive fan of those Sacramento Kings teams, right? And I know that's when the Grizzlies were still here, and, like, I'm a Grizzlies fan first, but, yeah, they weren't sniffing the playoffs. So when the playoffs rolled around, I got on the bandwagon with those Kings teams that were so entertaining. You followed Mike Bibby to Sacramento. Well, that was, this was even before. This predated Mike Bibby when it was Jason Williams running the show for Sacramento. I was into it then, too. But, then, yes, also when Mike Bibby got there. Bobby Jackson. They had some good players and just never quite got over. And there's, hey, when we talked about Tim Donaghy and and the betting scandals in the NBA and whether refs were fixing games, that's one that people often point to, that game seven between the Lakers and the Kings saying that game was fixed. They did that for the league. There's absolutely no way it should have gone that way because the Kings looked like they were going to take care of the Lakers and, and head off to the final. They were a great team. That was, yeah, a a crushing, disappointing loss. And even in the moment, I mean, obviously there was the conspiracy theories coming out about that game. Certainly did not quiet down when the Tim Donaghy uh, revelations came out. But, yeah, that uh, that was a devastating loss for young Jamie. Now, personally, I think of Chris Weber first and foremost for his college exploits, and I'm talking on the court. He was fantastic. He's one of the most dominant college players of all time. He was probably the face at the time of the Fab Five, and they were all recognizable, but he was the one because he threw down the crazy dunks. He was the behemoth in the middle of the court that just nobody could stop. But that Fab Five team, it was awesome. I'm a UNC guy, but I loved that team and just loved watching them play. It's honestly the most conflicted I've ever been in, in a college basketball final in the NCAA tournament because in the final year for the Fab Five, They took on North Carolina, the team I ultimately cheered for, but it was one of those I kind of didn't want to see either team lose situations. I got to pick one. And the Fab Five really looking back ahead of their time, right? Just in as college players, the way they dominated with their, and I don't mean dominated on the court, but I mean just dominated in the media sphere, right? With their personalities, with the kind of spectacle that they put on. That's really... You know, I don't want to say they were the first college athletes to ever do that, but very much something that felt ahead of its time. Yeah, they weren't the first, and the UNLV running Rebels predated them. But even from a fashion standpoint, think of this. This is in the height of the Michael Jordan era. It's in the run of his first three championships with the Bulls, and he is the biggest athlete on the planet. Everybody's talking about Jordan championship, number 23 Chicago Bulls, be like Mike, that whole thing. And while that's going on, 
these guys are changing fashion with what color socks NBA players are wearing. Like, they're taking their cues from college players and the length of shorts, and that came in really with them, and it became a cool thing to do. That Fab Five was defining in a bunch of different ways. And I mentioned scandal. Chris Weber, because of the the stuff that came out later about paying back a booster, and he got disgraced from the University of Michigan, and and they distanced themselves from him, Jamie. Ah, they pointed the finger yeah. at Chris, Chris Weber, and, hey, Michigan may have had some sanctions against it, but it always bugs me with this these stories, and it bugged me with Reggie Bush as well at USC, that Reggie Bush has to give back his Heisman and wag yeah. your finger at Reggie Bush, and this is what we're going to do to you, and, okay, maybe the university can't play in some bowl games, but the people behind the scenes, the big powerful execs who are in charge, you don't see them turning in any dough. You don't see them forfeiting anything at the time. No. And, I mean, really, that's just – it basically sums up college athletics, big-time college athletics on the revenue sides of things in the United States, right? And, I, look, I love college football. I love watching college basketball, especially when March Madness rolls around. So call me a hypocrite if you want. But that's how it works, right? The, the people in positions – of power they get to enjoy the big salaries they get to enjoy the prestige the security and the people actually playing the sports they don't make any money and if something does go wrong they're the ones first kind of to to face the music in the media do you know i know it's crazy the reason that chris weber's back in the news beyond getting inducted into the basketball hall of fame is that he said he got an apology from the athletic director at michigan and the athletic director at michigan has come out and said i didn't apologize to him like this is how, how stupid you? it is. This is how stupid it is. No, I never apologized to him. Hey, we think he did great things for Michigan basketball, and we wish him the best. But I never apologized. Like it's it's crazy that, and this is how petty it gets, and how stupid it gets in these situations. But you know what it got me thinking last night when I saw that story, and I was listening to Chris Weber. He was on with Dan Patrick yesterday. If they had had the name, image, and likeness rules then that they have now, how much money do you think the Fab Five would have made as college athletes? And, and we could talk about how much money they may have made under the table at the time and athletes of their generation. But I'm talking above board. How much money yeah. would those guys have raked in? They would have been rolling up to games like in Bentleys, right? If, if they had been able to cash in on their pro, uh, popularity and their – you know, just the level of influence they had at that time, if they had been able to truly cash in on that, they would have been overnight millionaires. And it's especially interesting because, you know, now big-time NBA prospects, they're one and done in college, right? So they're not there for all that long. That wasn't as common back then. Yeah, you could go straight from high school, but it was also okay if you do go to college. Yeah, you might spend two, three years there. So they would have had extra time to rack up the money. They would have had a long tenure in the NCAA to make some bank with the name, image, and likeness rules. Man, like even just selling their jerseys, signing yep. autographs, like they were rock stars. If you look at some of the old footage from those days, for those who may not have seen that or didn't pay attention to college basketball at the time, they were rock stars. And it's easy to say that about a college team in its own town, how much people care about basketball. It didn't matter where they went. Like, this is in an era where the UNLV running Rebels, who just predated the Fab Five, they came up and played an exhibition game in Vancouver at the time because that's how much of a show they were. And the Fab Five took that to another level, even though they didn't win a national championship. Yeah, it's the, the marketing opportunities would have been absolutely off the charts. And, you know, as we were talking about how kind of ridiculous it is in the NCAA, but it's always the athletes paying the price when there is a scandal or when rules have been broken, even if the rules are kind of ridiculous in the first place. I am really glad to see that 
the power balance is starting to shift just ever so slightly towards the athletes mm-hmm. in college athletics down south with the NIL rules now. And I think it's going to be so fascinating to see the implications for different programs like, you know, USC, right? A traditional powerhouse in college football haven't been that good for a while now. They just fired their coach. They're trying to get back to relevance. If you're a marketable high school quarterback looking for a place to play, I mean, that's got to be part of the pitch right now from USC, right? Like, come to this program with a national footprint footprint that, oh, yeah, happens to be in one of the media centers of North America, one of the media centers of the world. We can't pay you, but if you do anything of note on the field, you're going to have the chance to really pad your bank account at USC in a way you might not at some other schools. Like, that's going to be part of the dynamic now. I'm glad you brought up the USC job because Urban Meyer was asked about it yesterday, one of the great college coaches, and he's done it with a couple of different programs in college football. He's coaching the Jacksonville Jaguars now. Is that the weirdest flex you've ever seen yesterday on social media by the Jacksonville Jaguars, that they tweeted out quotes from Urban Meyer saying, I'm here? He's coached one game, and you're like, our coach is staying. He's staying. (laughs) He's not going anywhere. And you got crushed in that game, by the way. And they were like, the tweet was something along the lines of brick by brick. Like, I'm here. I see good players. I see good people. The fact that your coach said publicly that he's not taking a college job one game into his National Football League tenure is not something to flex about. Yeah. No. It's uh, – it's t- look – there's not a lot to flex on if you're the Jacksonville oh. Jaguars. You do not have a lot of bragging points, bragging rights right now. So I guess you got to find them where you can. But, yeah, it's pretty funny. Hey, he's not going anywhere. Well, yeah, it's been one game. It's been literally <laughs> one game. I might want him to go somewhere, depending on what happens yep. over the course of this season. We're going to turn things over to local programming on the eastern side of the Rockies. We'll reconvene tomorrow, same time, same place. Here in Vancouver, you and I roll on for one more hour. Jamie, Jet Wu, Canucks prospect, prospect camp gets going today. He will join us next right here on Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. It's the old testing and medicals day for the Canucks rookies, prospects. They're not all rookies. They're hoping to be rookies in the National Hockey League, most of them this year. Many of them know it's not going to be the reality. Jed Wu's going to join us here in just a couple of minutes, Jamie, as we start to dig into Canucks camp. And it's not a big roster that the Canucks are going to have for their rookie camp, which on ice gets going tomorrow. We know that the players main camp wise are going to come in next week. They're going to test and then they're going to get going next Thursday. Yeah, it's uh, it's the first taste of hockey, right? Like it's people skating around in their official capacity wearing Canucks colors. It's exciting. You know, I did. We had Sean Shapiro on earlier talking about the rise of prospect tournaments it is unfortunate the Canucks haven't been able to do the one in Penticton for a couple years now hopefully they get back to that because that's just you know so much fun for fans and I think for the players as well but hey right now we'll take anything we can get it's exciting yeah that falls into the category of you don't know how much you miss it until it's gone doesn't it It just was an accepted practice oh yeah Canucks are going to be in Penticton the Oilers are going to bring in their prospects and the Flames will do the same and the Winnipeg Jets some years are going to bring players, and these rookies are going to have these little tournaments, and it'll be good, and they can evaluate apples to apples. Hey, here's yeah. where they are relative to guys in the same kind of place in their careers right now, and here's the strides we've seen from some, and it was it was good for everybody or so it seemed. Now, I think the disagreement was over the host and whether that tournament should be moved 
sometimes being Penticton and the Canucks hosted, sometimes being a place like Red Deer and maybe the Flames and Oilers jointly hosted. I think that was a part of it. And eventually said, okay, well, I guess we're not going to do this. Hopefully, as you said, they get back to it. It was a really good part of the lead-up to an NHL season. Yeah, exactly. It kind of felt like the first marker of, okay, hockey season is here when we have the prospect tournament. And I do think they'll find a way to get back to it. You know, we again, we heard from Sean Shapiro about how much NHL teams value those tournaments, right, and how much they like to do them. So I think they'll find a way to get back to it at some point. Well, and here's the other part of it, Jamie. The Vancouver Canucks are a pretty good example about this. So there's going to be one prospect here at rookie camp that everybody just puts on the Vancouver Canucks roster, us included. Vasily Podkolzin, yep, yep, he's going to be there. Outside of that, there isn't any room at the inn. There are guys who look slated for the AHL, but they're further along in their careers than these prospects we're talking about here who might have a shot. They might have a shot. They might play so well that Travis Green and his coaching staff say, you know what, we're keeping this guy up at the start of the season, earned the opportunity. The the Brad Hunts, that type of player that has been around for a little bit. But as for the rest of the rookies, there's no real room at the end. So not having the opportunity to compete against their peers, it's really difficult to evaluate them. Yeah, it is. And and you get the sense that for a lot of the younger players, it's it's fighting to position yourself maybe for a midseason call-up at some point, right? If, if there's an injury or the team needs an extra body for whatever reason, you're fighting for that rather than fighting for the roster spot. Because as you said, you know, with the additions they made and especially with all of the veteran AHL slash NHL talent that they signed, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of open roster spots going into the year for the Canucks. Jet Wu set to join us here momentarily, and what a weird couple of years it's been for him, and I'm interested to see where he feels he's at. We all know how strange the NHL season was. Well, what about the AHL season yep. and the way it got going and the fact that if you were in the AHL for a Canadian club last year, you weren't going to be able to cross the border, so they had to make some decisions that they normally wouldn't make because there was a taxi squad, and we know about the players who went and practiced in Manitoba with the Moose just so that they might be available on this side of the border. And Jet Wu, nope, you're going to Utica, you're going to play there. By all accounts, most of his time was spent with Jack Rathbone, who we got to see at the end of the year in the National Hockey League. And so we'll get an idea of where his game's at from his perspective, what he learned in the AHL last season, and and maybe just what he expects with the normalcy, if we use that in quotations, because we're not quite back there yet, but at least the way the calendar rolls out right now, it feels a little normal when it comes to sports. And the travel aspect should feel more normal as well, right? I mean, you you forget also that was his first taste of professional hockey last year, right? Making the jump from the WHL to the AHL. We know how difficult that leap can be for players in normal circumstances, right? Let alone doing it in a year where everything is kind of topsy-turvy and up in the air with the AHL. By all accounts, I mean, he handled it really well and had a really solid first showing there with Utica, with the Comets. And it's, I'm sure, you know, just like the players at the NHL level are really excited to get back to normal, I think the guys in the AHL probably feel exactly the same way. Well, now you've got the added added dynamic this season, Jamie, of having the team in Abbotsford. And Canucks fans being able to go when they want to go see the prospects and Look, they'll still rely on their news sources, and honestly, credit to those who've done such a great job over the last few years, and man, boy, are we in a different spot with sports right now, but specifically hockey, and the people who would watch every game with the Utica Comets, they'd evaluate, they'd put out their reports, they'd make video clips available, it wasn't just checking the box score like it was back in the day, or hoping you got a score like back in the day. 
No, it was, you can, if you, look, you could find out anything you wanted about a Utica Comets player here in Vancouver. You could get clips and you could get stats and you could get analysis and quotes. So in that sense, maybe not that much will change, but I think for the players who are living it, it's going to be a very different experience playing so close to the main club. And just having the club right there and having people like the Sedins and other people within the front office, like Jim Benning's going to be at Abbotsford Canucks games this year. You're going to see Travis Green, if there's a break in the schedule, check out some games if it happens to line up that way. And and just having that ability to see them more often, and not that management didn't go see them in Utica, but there's this very obvious in-your-face, hey, it's right there, and if things go well for you right now and if a couple things break a certain way at the National Hockey League level, get in the car. You might be suiting up tomorrow night. Well, and are there going to be chances to you know get an escape with the Canucks coaching staff and with some Canucks players at different points, right? If there's a break in the schedule, if there happens to be a day where you know you're in town and we have a practice scheduled, come on out, right? We we could use an extra body. Like those are the opportunities that just wouldn't have existed in Utica, despite by all accounts, again Utica being a fantastic environment in a lot of other ways. It's just different when you're just down the road, just down the highway in Abbotsford. Well, think of what this means to a guy like oh, I don't know. Mikey DiPietro, who has had such a weird couple of years, gets thrown into the NHL game when he shouldn't be in net, and we all knew it. And then, of course, you got last year where he didn't play very much whatsoever, and now all of a sudden you can go play games in Abbotsford, but Ian Clark's close enough that you can get that fine-tuning from him. You don't have to wait till the Canucks go on an Eastern road swing or something like that to visit with the guy at the top level. Like, There's a bunch of advantages that you built in here. Oh, there's a huge – that's a great example, too, of specifically getting the opportunity to work with Ian Clark for, for Mikey DiPietro. And, I mean, for Mikey DiPietro, the most important thing is just playing a ton of games for Abbotsford, right, is being the workhorse starter with how everything else has gone for him over the last couple of seasons. That's priority number one. But still, it's a pretty nice perk to have your goalie coach and a goalie coach who many regard as you know, one of the best in the league in such close proximity to you, able to work with you on a much more regular basis. Scott Rental, Jamie Dodd, you want in on the conversation, get there. Dunbar Lumber text message inbox is 650-650. We look forward to hooking up with Jet Wu in just a couple minutes. Time maybe just doesn't have the number. Maybe he doesn't have the number, Jamie. Maybe he doesn't have it pre-programmed into his phone. But now that he's going to be playing in Abbotsford, I imagine that he will commit it. Well, and it's not as if there's anybody, you know, in the Canucks media department who would know the number for the studio or anything and be able to pass it along to Jet Wu. So, you know, I can understand why that might be a, a, a delay here. Yeah, C-Mac, get on that. Get on that. Maybe he's just pulling a fast one on us here. Maybe that's what he's yeah. doing to us. This is hazing. He's like, he's giving us a little bit yeah. of initiation here. Oh, yeah, sure, you guys can talk to Jet Wu later. No, yeah, no problem. Sure. Who else you want? I can have them all. I don't worry. They'll be calling in one after another. You guys will be just fine. Yeah, I've got that lined up for you. Hasn't talked to the players. Yeah. All right, C-Mac, we're holding you accountable here. Our listeners do the exact same to us. This is a bit of an offshoot, but I wanted to get back to this conversation. And as we're talking prospects and evaluating and when you make a decision on them along the way, this guy's doing it under the lights of the National Football League. And we talked about him a bunch in the second hour of the show. I wanted to see where you're at personally with Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones, the quarterback of the New York Giants, he gets taken sixth overall. People thought it was a reach at the time. The Giants said, nope, this was our guy. There is a real polarizing view of Daniel Jones. There is the, you took the wrong guy, it's never going to work. 
He's just not a starting quarterback in the NFL, despite the fact they've only seen two years of him, Jamie. There's the other side of, I see so many skills here, and if you watch him, you can actually tell, and if you're around him, you can actually tell, this is going to work, it's a matter of time, and maybe it's a matter of environment, which he doesn't seem to have right now in New York. So... For me personally, I'm not optimistic about Daniel Jones, but I do think that has at least as much to do with everything going on around him as it does with him specifically. Because I do think it was a reach when they drafted him, but the counter argument is true as well. He has these incredible physical characteristics. You know, everything you hear about his work ethic is fantastic. So you see the building blocks there. I think the comparison the Giants would want to make is to Josh Allen, right? Another guy. Didn't impress that much in his first couple years in the league, but you always knew the physical tools were there, and you saw the leap that he took in year three. I think the difference is Josh Allen was more well-regarded coming out of college as a draft prospect. He went higher in the draft, and people had a lot more confidence in his ability than they did with Daniel Jones. But I would also point again to the environment. You know, they went out and got Stephon Diggs to play with Josh Allen. Brian Dabble, extremely well-regarded as an offensive coordinator for Buffalo. Daniel Jones doesn't really have that same kind of environment. Yeah, you can look and see, okay, you know, Saquon Barkley's a nice weapon, even with the injury concerns. They go out and get Connie, Kenny Galladay. He's not in the same class as Stephon Diggs. Evan Ingram, will he ever meet his potential, right? But what it comes down to me more than anything else is, do you have confidence in Jason Garrett to get the most out of any of those players, and specifically Daniel Jones? And will any of that matter if the offensive line doesn't improve you know they they drafted Andrew Thomas I think I think with the fourth overall pick to play left tackle didn't work out at all last year they need that to turn around more than anything else I think for Daniel Jones I'm not out on him yet I don't know about you I've seen enough that I want to see more I'm not I'm not at the point where I'm like nope this isn't gonna work like this guy can't play I'm not suggesting he's going to be Josh Allen level I'm not suggesting that he's going to be in an MVP conversation at some point I do think I've seen enough skill set wise from Daniel Jones that if he's in the right environment yeah I can see him as a tier two quarterback in the NFL and as I've said many many times you can win with a tier two quarterback you need other stuff on your team to be good I've seen enough from Daniel Jones to think he could be that if treated properly. I think that's fair. I think it is, as I said, at least as much about the environment with Daniel Jones and what's going on around him in New York. Not to say that what he's done individually has been that impressive, but it hasn't been a complete disaster either. It's not, he's not the kind of guy where he gets out there and you say, oh, wow, this, this is done. This is just never going to work at the NFL level, right? Like, we see that all the time with prospects coming in and getting their first starts at quarterback, and you almost immediately get the sense, yeah, you know what, this is not, this does not have a future. That's not Daniel Jones. And, you know, I look at him, okay, let's say it doesn't go well for the Giants this year, and as we heard earlier in the program, that means there's major changes in the front office and the coaching staff, and they decide to move on from Daniel Jones. You know, if I'm another team struggling for answers at quarterback, yeah, I would absolutely be interested in trading for him if you have the right infrastructure around him, if you have a good offensive coordinator who knows how to get the most out of him and an offensive line that can protect for him as well. So, for example, the Minnesota Vikings after this year, would they be markedly better, markedly worse with Jan Daniel Jones behind center or Kirk Cousins behind center? I think it would look very, very similar. I think Daniel Jones has more upside than Kirk Cousins does. Obviously, we know what Kirk Cousins is. Daniel Jones has the athletic advantage. You know, you, you like to think that he could add a more explosive element to your offense, but I'm not sure that significantly upgrades the team as a whole in Minnesota. 
So we got a couple of really good test cases for this, and every player is different, every environment is different, but we got a couple of pretty high-profile ones right now. People like the coaching staff that's been assembled in Carolina, and yep. they like the potential for what could happen offensively in Carolina, and they bring in Sam Darnold. They bet on the environment being just so bad in New York, the talent being good enough that they can do something with Sam Darnold. He got to play his former team in week one. He looked decent. He wasn't incredible, but he played pretty decent against his old team but it's the Jets so you kind of take it with a grain of salt we'll see where it goes with Sam Darnold in Carolina probably the ultimate litmus test of this is Jameis Winston in New Orleans Jameis Winston we know how good the upside can be like we know how like if you just look at the things he has done well they're really really good and then you look at the things that have been awful and you say okay is that part of Jameis Winston's DNA is that part of the way he was coached and asked to do the wrong things in in Tampa Bay? And is that a player that at this point of his career can build enough structure in that you get the good things more often and the bad things only happen just a little bit, just not to the frequency they did in T-Bay? I would say the difference with Jameis Winston between him and Sam Darnold and even Daniel Jones is at this point he's a little bit farther on in his career. And I think we saw more kind of we we saw the upside come to fruition more with Jameis Winston in Tampa than we ever did with Sam Darnold in New York or that we have with Daniel Jones in New York so far and yeah it was always there's always the counterbalance of the bad side of Jameis as well but we knew okay this guy can rack up yards this guy can move the ball this guy can throw touchdown passes it might all be canceled out by what he when he's thrown picks as well, but I think you had a better sense of what the upside actually looked like with Jameis Winston, and it was more of a defined task for the Saints, right? Okay, we just we know what the good can be. We have a very clear idea of that. We just need to find a way to cut out the bad. I think with Sam Darnold, there's still a question of what does the good look like? Like you see mm-hmm. the the physical upside, but okay, what does an actual really good productive season from Sam Darnold look like? That's more of a question with him than I think it was or it is at this point with Jameis Winston, certainly. Would you compare either of them to Ryan Tannehill? Because it's worked really well. Not in week one, but it's worked really well since he left Miami and got into Tennessee. I think that's probably the closer Sam Darnold comparison. And I mean, it's easy to make because of the Adam Gase connection, right? Yeah. Like, hey, this guy got away from Adam Gase and all of a sudden he looks like a top 10 quarterback in the league after looking like, you know, he was going to wash out of the league not that long ago. So I, I get it. It's easy from that perspective. I think there's some truth to it. You know, I mean, Adam Gase, there's a lot to criticize there. Like, you don't want to pin all of Sam Darnold's struggles on one guy, on the coach, but the coach is really important for a quarterback trying to make his way in the NFL as a young player. The coach is really, really important, and like we know what Adam Gase is. So I, I do think that's a, a pretty accurate comparison in a lot of ways. doesn't mean it's going to turn out like it has for Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee, but I get why people draw that parallel. I saw that there were the stat the other day. There are 15 quarterbacks who are different for their team this year as compared to last year. Like year over year, there are 15 yep. teams that have a different guy starting game one than a season ago. That's tied for the most ever. I don't know if you know that's that. A lot. That's lot. Yeah, yeah, that's no, tied I, that's, for the, the highest turnover. I mean, that's almost half the league, switching quarterbacks in some capacity, right? Well, you know, whether it's because they drafted a guy, traded, whatever it is, that's a, that's a huge number. Yeah, and we're talking about situations where you're like, okay, I'm not quite sure what this guy is. I've seen enough that I like that if we put him in a different environment, how is it going to work? Like, that's not what people think about Jared Goff. 
Like, people don't think, no. you know what? If they get him to Detroit, they're really going to see how good he is. No, people look at Goff <laughs> as wait. having been in a great environment and topping out and just kind of knowing what he is now. Just wait until you see what Jared Goff can do under Dan Campbell. Sean McVay holding them back. Now you're going to see the real Jared Goff with Dan Campbell. Yeah, just like Andy Dalton. Same thing. Just like Andy <laughs> Dalton. Just get him to Chicago, and it'll be just fine. Didn't work in Dallas, but it'll be just fine. I appreciate what Andy Dalton did earlier in his career, but come on. No. It's, um, it, it's I don't know. I don't know what the game plan is there, right? And it, it's interesting because... With that situation, you think everything about Matt Nagy's situation should be screaming at him to start Justin Fields, right? Like, that's the clearest avenue to, to saving your job if you're Matt Nagy because it's just not going to happen with Andy Dalton. But then you think, okay, well, he's not doing that. Are there actually legitimate reasons to be concerned about Justin Fields that he's seeing in practice that we're maybe not picking up on. You know what I mean? Like, all of the logic seems to point to getting Justin Fields in there. If he's not doing that, is there something else going on that we're not cluing in on? The only way I respect it, the only way I respect it is if it's, look, if we put him out there right now, I honestly think he's going to get hurt. And if he gets hurt... That disrupts his career more than anything else. And our line, O-line is so bad, and yeah, I know about the escapability, but he hasn't played against some of the best in the biz. I mean, that's a pretty good reason for week one. They're playing the L.A. Rams. They're playing Aaron Donald. And, yep, he would have run around a lot more, and he would have extended a lot of plays, and he would have avoided some of the sacks that Andy Dalton ended up taking in that game. But if the concern was, if I put him out there against this defense, which is one of the top-tier ones in the NFL— I think we might actually get the young man hurt. And in some ways, it's actually a very commendable position by Matt Nagy, right? Like, if he is genuinely acting out of, okay, what's going to be best for Justin Fields in the long term, and he genuinely believes the best thing for Justin Fields, whether it's because of injury concerns, whether it's because he needs more time to learn the playbook and get comfortable, whatever it is, if the if he thinks the best thing for Justin Fields in his long-term career is to sit on the bench right now, That's actually very commendable for Matt Nagy because, again, I think clearly the best thing for Matt Nagy's job security is to roll the dice with Justin Fields. All right, we're going to shift back to hockey here, Jamie. Normally we take a quick timeout around this time, but this young man's time is limited today, so we're going to push this segment a little bit. Jet Wu, Canucks prospect, he joins us now on the line. Jet, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. No problem whatsoever. I think the last time I spoke to you was the day before the NHL draft down in Dallas. And as Stance had it, your agent lined up an interview with us, had no idea that the Vancouver Canucks would end up selecting you in the second round of that draft. Sometimes things just work out. Does that feel like yesterday to you, or does that feel like an ancient memory? Uh, that feels like, uh, yeah, that feels like an ancient memory. That feels like a long, long time ago. I think, uh, I think right now I'm just at training camp. I think that was my my third or fourth camp now. So, um, no, that was that was a great memory. But yeah, that was that, that felt like a long time ago. So, how is Jet Wu today in 2021 different from the young man I sat down with in 2018? Uh, pretty good. He's uh, I'd say I'm very. Um, I think over the years been able to learn a lot more, especially playing my first year pro last year in Utica, being able to learn a lot from those guys, the coaches and players there. Um, and like I said, coming into my fourth camp now, just all the experience I've been able to have and as well as developing on the ice, is, I think it's pushed me to become a, a lot better of a player and a person. 
you know, as you say, Jet, your fourth camp now with the Canucks since being drafted back in 2018. And, you know, you'll be with the rookies for rookie camp, which gets going today with the testing on the ice tomorrow. How does it feel to be kind of the veteran of rookie camp? And, you know, you're the guy who's been through this before. You, do, do you feel like you can maybe uh, teach the younger guys a thing or two here? Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of guys here that are my age or a year younger. And um, so you don't really look at them as too young. But I think, like I said before, to to kind of know – um, to kind of go through it and have that experience of what it's kind of been like, I think helps me a lot. And uh, I think the nerves have settled down a little bit compared to my first time as well. So I'm just here to play hockey and to learn and to get better. Well, and, you know, given everything that's happened just in the world and in hockey over the last 18 months or so, I mean, I can imagine you must just be really excited to to get back on the ice here with some other Canucks prospects and, and get some skating in, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we only played, I think it was like under 30 games last year in Utica. So to come back to camp, you know, and to, to get back into things and play fast again and be a part of the team is, is a lot of fun. And I think we're all really looking forward to it. You mentioned you get your first taste of pro hockey in Utica in the AHL. 28 games is what you ended up playing. So not a full season, but still a decent chunk. You know, we'll get into some of the ways in which it was a, a weird year in the AHL. But just overall, how would you evaluate uh, your first tour of duty in the AHL? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit weird. You know, first off, having a, you know, sharing a team uh, with St. Louis and then getting to know those guys and kind of having that um experience was different and then like you said only playing i think it was 28 games is what you said and, um but you know that was just you know we didn't really focus about it too much when we were playing we were just going out there and doing the same thing um unfortunately we weren't able to play with fans too often so again that was a little bit different but um overall the the experience of being a you know part of that team and like i said being with those coaches and learning and um being part of a group that was a little bit older too um i think helped me and helped me develop both on and off the ice, I think was a good thing. Jet Wu, defenseman within the Canucks organization, getting set for rookie camp, which gets going tomorrow. He joins us here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd this afternoon. You've had to make a couple of different transitions. You played in Moose Jaw for most of your WHL career. Then you go to Calgary. You talk about last year going to Utica. You're making these adjustments along the way. What's it been like trying to adjust to different teammates and different coaching styles over the last couple of seasons? Uh, you know what? It, it hasn't been that bad. I think, um, especially with the coaches, I think it's been uh, they've all been pretty welcoming and been able to help me make the transition. Same with the teammates, and um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to play with um, you know guys that I've already kind of played with in the in the past. So to kind of know some guys already makes it a lot easier. But um, you know, regarding you know my first year pro, uh, being able to live on my own for the first time and. You know, the little things like, uh, you know, buying my own groceries or, or cleaning around the house, vacuuming, the things like that. Um, no, it, it was a fun experience. And um, I think, like I said, the, the coaches and teammates made it a lot easier for me. With everything going on with COVID over this past year and a half and then moving away from home and being on your own and your family on the other side of the border and getting your first taste of pro hockey, was the off-ice experience difficult for you to adjust with, and, and was there any anxiety that came with that being in another country? Uh, I, yeah, I think before the season, there's I, I think about it a little bit. I think once it happened, everything was going so quickly, and um, that it wasn't really something to worry about. Um, at the time when, when our team kind of went through the COVID phase where some of us got it, um, there's definitely that worry of not being in the same country as your family and, and things like that, but 
um, kind of like I said before, just having the support of teammates and coaches uh, made it very easy for all of us to kind of gel together. And I, I don't think uh, we worried about it too much. One of your teammates last season, and he's still within the Canucks organization, a guy played a lot of hockey with last year, Jack Rathbone. Yep. What was the pairing like? How would you describe the on-ice chemistry the two of you had together? Uh, it was a lot of fun. We, uh, I think not only on the ice, but off the ice, we gelled pretty good, and I think that made it a lot easier for both of us. Uh, I'd say that you know we, we complemented our games for, very good, and um, you know, we, I think that just it, it showed really how, how good of a – you know, chemistry we had both on and off the ice. So that was kind of our, our team last year. We were, we were all pretty good together, and, um, you know, we had a lot of fun. Was it cool for you to see, you know, a guy you played a lot with, with Utica at the end of the year, get a little taste of the NHL action, watching Jack Rathbone with the Canucks towards the end of last season? Yeah, that was exciting to to see him do that, to score his first goal. I think we're all pretty pumped up for him. And, you know, to get, to watch guys like him and Lockwood or, or, or Lindy to, to play their first few games in the show, um, it was pretty exciting for all of us, and I know we were all cheering for them when it happened. Well, don't forget, Lindy is uh, down just down the road now in Seattle, so <laughs> he's <laughs> yep. he's on the other yeah, side all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, know, you know, Jet, we – yeah, oh, yeah. Um, Jet, you know, we hear a lot from players about – how difficult it can be sometimes to make the jump from major junior to professional hockey at the AHL level for you. You know, we've talked a little about the off the ice element, but just on the ice, what did you think was kind of the biggest adjustment you had to make in your game moving into professional hockey for the first time? Um, I think for me, it was just about getting uh, my reps and and being able to have that experience of playing the games. Um, A thing I noticed was everyone was, you know, from the first to the fourth line, everyone took it super serious and said, you know, in junior when, um, you know, sometimes there'd be guys that you know, wouldn't, um, but, you know, definitely you see, you see the work that all the guys put in, wherever, whether they're playing or not. Um, it just shows on the ice how smart guys are and how much stronger guys are faster. So uh, I think just to develop in all those areas, just all around my game, um, it was the best thing for me. And like I said before, to play with a bunch of older guys and for them to kind of show me the way of it made it a lot easier for me. And of course, the other really interesting thing about the Canucks AHL situation this year, of course, is it's moving to Abbotsford. It's going to be in the lower mainland, very, very close to the main team. And, you know, fans who are also Canucks fans will have a chance to go to games and cheer you guys on. What, what's your, what are you most excited about, about that situation with the team playing in Abbotsford? I think being so close to to Vancouver has its perks and, and, you know, whether someone would get called up or not, um, just, you know, that quick, you know, 30, 45 minute drive to the rink back to Rogers uh, makes it a lot easier instead of taking a few flights and a drive kind of thing. Um, as well as, like you said, just being in BC with, you know, Vancouver fans, you know, BC being the, or Vancouver being the, you know, top sports team here, I, I think just helps with all that. And um, I, I think we're all pretty excited to get that going as well. Jet Wu, a couple more minutes with the Canucks defensive prospect. He joins us here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. So AHL is right there. It's in Abbotsford. You can see the NHL, and that's where you want to be. I know that would be one of the goals this year. Hey, try to play a game, multiple games in the National Hockey League. What about from an individual standpoint? What are your goals this season as far as improvement goes? Honestly, I, th- I think for me it's just, again, to, to just keep doing the kind of what I did last year, get the experience, get the reps in, uh, soak in as much information as I can. Um, you know, obviously, just in practice, improving on the things that 
you know, like my speed, my quickness, you know, my shots from the point. Um, but I think the things that you need from a game, kind of, you know, getting pucks out under pressure, um, going back for pucks quickly, get, you know, doing a good job on the PK. I think those things as well uh, are things I want to improve on and get better because those are the, the key points in my game. One of the things fans love about you is you play a physical game. You love to dish a big hit. That takes some wear and tear on the body, and obviously over the last few years there have been injuries at times. How are you health-wise right now, Jet? Uh, I'm very healthy. This is a, it was a great off-season for me. Um, being able to get my, my on and off ice ability is a lot better, and uh, no, no injuries, feeling great. I wanted to relay this text from one of our listeners to you. We don't always do this, but we're going to make an exception in this case. Andrew texts this in saying, please ask Jet what it means to him to be of Chinese descent, making his journey toward being an NHL player. Fans, especially myself, who's of Chinese descent, are rooting for you, Jet. When you hear something like that, what does it mean? You know, that, that's awesome to, to, to know I have that kind of support behind me. Um, you know, not only that, and, and with my family, I know – even my dad grew up having a tough time playing hockey, and then at some points I did too. So, um, you know, to to know that there's you know, people for rooting for me in that way and having my support, uh, it means a lot, and kind of makes me just want to push even harder. Have you noticed a change at all? You said at times it was hard for you, and obviously we've talked a lot more in sports and in society in the last few years about racial issues, about language. Have you noticed a change at all? I have. I, I noticed um, growing up, it, it kind of dwindled away a little bit. I don't know if it was because of, of uh, the, I guess, the type of hockey I was playing or the leagues or whatever it was, but I have a little bit. Um, but I know, you know, my little brother's growing up playing hockey now, so it's kind of just, you know, you're hoping that he doesn't have to go through the same things that you know, some of the things I had to go through, my dad had to go through, and everyone else that might have gone through it, so. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I, I have noticed a little bit of a difference and hopefully can finally, you know, disappear for good. Well, and I hope that from a confidence standpoint, you're more confident today that if language is used that is inappropriate, if things that are said that are inappropriate, that there are more people today that would stand up in a dressing room or at a yeah. game and say, not okay. Yeah, 100%. That's great to hear. Hey, Jet, we wish you the best. Glad to hear that you're healthy. you got a lot of people rooting for you. Have a great camp. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. That is Jet Wu. He was a good interview when he was an 18-year-old kid looking yeah. to come into the league. Jamie, that hasn't changed. And I'm glad to hear something that's very important at the end of that interview. And that doesn't mean for a second I think that everything is fixed around sports or about hockey culture or anything like that. I'm glad to hear from a young man who's just making his way up the ranks that he has at least noticed some shift in that regard when it comes to racial issues and things that are being said, the way that he's been treated or others around him are being treated. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting as well to hear him mention what it was like for his dad, right? And, and you know, I can only imagine for Jet Wu then, you know, you, know, you heard him, uh, say how much it means to hear people like our texter say like, hey, they're rooting for him. I thought that was really interesting, right? To He has a sense of what it was like for his dad. He's seen the improvement. And as you heard him say, like, hopefully it gets even better for his little brother and other people down the road. And it's great to hear that he is seeing that change. We don't always push the break, but when we do, it's for someone like Jet Wu. We did it here. <laughs> We're late now. Back for one final segment next on Rent to One Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie, just tell me, please, tell me, 
Some things in life just don't have explanation, but maybe you have an explanation. Why am I so entertained this week by this Nicki Minaj story? Why am I so entertained by it? It took me a second to clue in as to why we were playing that, but then I got it. Well, here's the thing, Scotty. It's intrinsically hilarious. Like, it's ridiculous, and there's a lot of other adjectives you could use to describe it, but it's also just flat-out hilarious. It is. And the reports that have followed have been hilarious for so many different reasons. And if you don't know what the Nicki Minaj story is, it's this. Look, there are a bunch of people out there, some of them listening right now, who have chosen not to get vaccinated. They have their own personal reasons. And we've heard some strange claims from people, but people have their reservations. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You can choose what to put in your body. I can't tell you what to do. I can tell you what I prefer. I'm going with the science, but it's up to you. You deal with the consequences, and we're seeing them being laid out right now in our society. Nicki Minaj tweeted that her cousin, not her, but her cousin in Trinidad isn't getting a vaccine because a friend of her cousin became impotent after getting vaccinated. She went on to tweet, his his testicles became swollen, his friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So that in itself is one of the wild and outlandish claims that we've heard during the course of this pandemic. So in and of itself, wild and outlandish, but easy enough to move on from. But because of the star power involved here, in Trinidad, they had to go down the road to find out if this claim is actually true. Is there someone who actually says this? Do we have to follow up with this person? And so you're seeing top doctors and health authorities in Trinidad and Tobago having to come out and refute this report in a public setting because of this claim and the star power attached to it. I mean, literally the health minister of the country, like in some ways the highest ranking medical health officer, health authority, however you want to characterize it, the health minister of the country had to address this story and this claim by Nicki Minaj and say, uh, you know what? We um, uh, we don't have any record of uh, anybody, you know, with swollen testicles as a result of the vaccine. <laughs> like, think about how hard you have to work and how much time you have to put in to become the health minister for a whole country. And, you know, you've studied medicine probably at some point or at least public health. You've put in all of these hours of work. And then these are the questions you're being made to answer in the middle of a global pandemic. It's wild, man. It's absolutely wild that this is what had to be addressed yesterday. And you could hear the frustration if you watched the health minister's comments. And he said, like, we've wasted a whole day. And the implication was, and resources as well here, because of this claim and because we had so many people asking about it. And there are a lot better things we could be doing right now. But because of this, this is what I've spent my day doing. Do you know how long I worked? As you said, James, do you know how long I worked to be the health minister in this country? I didn't think it was going to come to this. This is not what I expected to be part of my portfolio when I signed up to be health minister of Trinidad and Tobago. Scotty, you know the um, like the sports business reporter, Darren Rovell, right? Um, Who's a very, very popular Twitter feed, mostly because people like to dunk on him. But whatever. Anyways, in the lead up to the uh, 2016 presidential election in the United States, which, as you remember, was a bit of a circus. Let's put it that way. uh, Rovell tweeted, I believe the exact words are, I feel bad for our country but this is tremendous content. That tweet has just become more and more relevant yeah. <laughs> in recent days. Yeah. And that's something that popped to my mind with the Nicki Minaj story. Like, 
I feel bad for Trinidad and Tobago, but this is tremendous content. It yeah, really is. That's, that's a really good point by him, and it's a really good point by you. I'm Scott Rental. He's Jamie Dodd for a few more minutes here today on this Thursday before we turn things over to Sportsnet Today, hosted by Bick Nazar and Katie Caldwell. Okay, a couple of things to get in here. There is a tie-in because, Jamie, we, we talked about it off the top of the show, and we found out and got more confirmation that BC is likely to start with not full capacity at BC, not at BC Lions games, at Vancouver Canucks games. We know right now at BC Lions games, at Vancouver Whitecaps games, they cap it. Half of the lower bowl and the suites, that's what you're allowed to have in the stadium right now. I went to it the other day. They didn't say it's going to be 50%, but Elliot Friedman relayed the information from Bill Daly today that the provinces of BC and Quebec, there is going to be limited capacity in place. At least that's the assumption they're operating under right now. Even though the Canucks have a a start date at home that is far in advance of most National Hockey League teams. And the if I had to bet right now, like, again, we don't know the exact percentage, but just based on what they've done at Lions games, Whitecaps games, et cetera, if I had to bet, I would bet on 50% for the Canucks' first game. Things could change in the meantime, right, in the interim. We'll see, but that's where I would put my money right now. Yeah, that's, I think, what they're going to start and hope it goes upward from there. I think that, yeah. that they're just hoping that's the floor. Okay, Let's hope that we're 50% or better, and we will cross our fingers that it's better. So that's what it's going to be. It sounds like in Alberta, despite everything that happened yesterday, if you weren't paying attention to the news yesterday, they're changing course in Alberta, and they're taking yep. a, couple, a couple of big steps back with what they've been doing. They opened things up a lot more than other provinces. They didn't scale things back when it came to September, and unfortunately... That province is paying the price right now with the number of COVID cases it has, with the number of people in ICUs. Their hospitals are being very taxed right now. And if they don't take some significant measures right now, it's of the health authorities and those in politics there that they are going to be in in really dire circumstances in their hospitals. So they're taking some hard steps back. But despite that, and despite the fact they're going to introduce a vaccine passport in that province, right now the NHL is operating under the assumption that Edmonton, Calgary, yeah, it might be you have to show a Vax passport to get in or show a negative COVID test within 24 or 48 hours to get in, but all seats would be open. And I'm a little surprised by that, specifically because of what we heard coming out of Alberta and the almost, you know, I mean, it kind of started as an apology, but then it morphed into maybe not an apology, but it was a pretty strong shift to more regulations around COVID, right, in Alberta. That's what we saw out of that province yesterday. So I'm a little surprised that the expectation is still full capacity in Calgary and Edmonton. I guess because of the vaccine requirements, it makes a little bit more sense. But I do still wonder if we see some movement, depending on how things go in Alberta here over the next few weeks. Yeah, and let's hope that things get better, not for sporting events, I agree. but just for society in general. Let's hope that these measures have the desired effect. And they did reintroduce a mask mandate indoors in Alberta. We've obviously had one in BC for quite some time now, but they reintroduced that mask mandate. I will tell you this, having been at a couple of sporting events last weekend, and I know some of our listeners can attest to this as well, Jamie, you're supposed to have your mask on when you're not consuming beverages, but once people get to their seats, certainly not everybody there is wearing their masks throughout the, no. throughout the course of the game. And I do feel for the attendants and the ushers and security in some places that they're holding signs that say face masks are mandatory, and yet they can't police it in every seat in every section of the stadium. 
No, it's just they don't have the manpower, right? It would be too hard, and then you have people like, oh, actually, I was eating. See, I have this, you know, bag of candy here. That's why I didn't have my mask on or whatever. It's it's beyond what you're going to ask those people in those positions to do. It's just too yeah. difficult. Yeah, and you're just hoping that people abide by the rules and do what yeah. you've asked of them, and, and some aren't going to, and I think that people know that, and there's some leeway granted there. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes as well and, and how how much these policies are enforced when we get into some of these venues and when we get into Canucks games this year. Well, and I've heard even people, you know, have questions about how the the vaccine mandate itself is going to be enforced, not at a, at a venue like the Canucks or the Lions or the Whitecaps, but at smaller restaurants, things like that. And it's a fair question. I mean, I think, as you said, you just have to, at a certain point, kind of trust that there's going to be, you know, accountability on an individual level and at the individual business level. Like it's not, you know, questions about enforcement aren't a reason that you should not put the rules in place in the first place. Agree with you wholeheartedly. And while we're talking about sporting events that are happening in our city, and I mentioned I went to a couple last weekend, I know you're eager to get back when you're able to. Jamie, I should mention this. The BC Lions made a significant announcement today about their upcoming game, and they're on the road this week. They're playing in, uh, pardon me, they're playing in Montreal on Saturday. But for their next home game, which is their closest home game next to National Truth and Reconciliation Day, which will be observed in on September 30th, and some provinces are having that as, as a holiday. Some are not, but it is National Truth and Reconciliation Day on September 30th. The BC Lions, they are going to use that game to highlight the issue with National Truth and Reconciliation, the one on September 24th. Obviously, the Lions' home color is orange. I think most people know about Orange Shirt Day, Jamie. And so not surprising to see the Lions players wearing orange spats and orange tape. But the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are going to do the same thing. I think it's a very cool initiative and good on the BC Lions for taking a positive step forward in that. And did you see – I agree. Totally a really cool initiative by the BC Lions. And did you see the uh, design incorporating First Nations art of the BC Lions logo that they put out today as well? Really incredibly beautiful. The artist, you can see it up. Uh, the place I saw it was on J.J. Adams, of course, sports reporter, the Vancouver Sun, the Vancouver Province. He has it on his Twitter feed. Uh, the artist is Kareen Hunt and just a really, really sharp, cool design. And it looks like they're going to do a really good job of of acknowledging the moment at the BC Lions game. Yeah, really well done. Nice step forward. Lions have always been very good in the community and recognizing the people of this province. Very well done here. Wanted to give them a cap tip, and I think that'll be a great initiative and will get a lot of attention not only here in British Columbia but nationally as well when they play that home game against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. That'll do it for us here today, buddy. We hit a bunch of different things throughout the course of the show. Thank you very much once again, Mr. Dodd. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad we got the Nicki Minaj story in there, Scotty. I was worried we were going to run out of time, so thank you for making sure we got to hit it. Well, that's because of Greg Ballack, because he was willing to play the music. Big ups <laughs> to him back at Mission Control. Roger Shergill, excellent job getting everything assembled on the program today. He'll produce the show again tomorrow. It should be another fantastic one. We will make way now for Bick Nazar and Katie Caldwell. They will host Sportsnet today. Have a listen. Text in to the Dunbar Lumber text line at 650-650. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday.